we think of military medicine all too often as only trauma care. It's, as you know, much, much more than that and begins with preventive medicine, keeping people healthy, understanding the situation into which we're putting them and making sure that we have strategies in place to deal with whatever the infections or other threats are. But but as far as Vietnam, I think the, the control of the bleed is number one. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Lieutenant General Dr. Ronald Blank to Wardox. Dr. Blank served in multiple leadership positions across the globe in his 32 years in the Army. These assignments included Battalion Surgeon in Vietnam, Commander of the Berlin Army Hospital, Assistant Dean of Student Affairs at the Uniformed Services University, Commander of Walter Reed Army Medical Center, and culminated as the 39th Surgeon General of the U.S. Army. You can learn more about his bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear many engaging and insightful stories from Dr. Blank's distinguished career. He talks about being deployed as a physician in Vietnam, commanding a hospital in Berlin right before the wall fell, and how he used lessons from his career to improve military medical education. He also shares many leadership pearls and how to make tough decisions from his experiences in the highest strategic levels of military medicine. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon, Dr. Kevin Neary. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Lieutenant General Dr. Ronald Blank to Wardox. Sir, thanks for joining us today. It's my privilege and pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, General Blank, what was your motivation and pathway to joining the military? Well, I finished medical school in 1967, did an internship, and about halfway through, I started thinking about what was I going to do after internship? I didn't want to go directly into practice. You could in those days quite easily if you did primary care. I knew I was interested in internal medicine, but where was I going to get that training and so forth? And then it occurred to me, I really want to see what's going on in Vietnam. So I marched down to the army recruiter and said, I want to join, but you have to promise to send me to Vietnam. And the uh, recruiter looked at me and he said, son, we're going to make you very happy. And indeed they did. (laughs) And so I volunteered, uh, as many still did in those days, the draft largely filling positions came about later. And so I entered the Army in September of 1968. So you had just completed your medical school and had done one year of training before you went to Vietnam? One year of training and four weeks of basic at Fort Sam Houston, a few days off, got in an airplane and ended up in, in Vietnam for what turned out to be the beginning of a great adventure with the Army. When you were at basic training, what kind of expectations did they give you of what you'd be doing as a doctor deployed to a war zone? They emphasized preventive medicine, infectious disease, some trauma resuscitation skills. We took care of a goat. We've all done that kind of thing. And it was something that I took seriously. I think most of us did. But but it was too short a time to really appreciate what we were going to face in that far away country. So what were the most significant military medicine issues the Army faced during the Vietnam War? 
Well, in my mind, first and foremost, of course, the trauma. As you well know, we lost 58,000 killed in Vietnam. 47,000 were due to combat, and that was trauma. The others were infections, and in the three areas that that I saw the significant that made folks combat ineffective were, first of all, rashes, trench foot, those kinds of things. The dermatologic problems were uh, were enormous. Then, of course, infections, malaria, and so forth and so on. Uh, and then later, after I left, though I've written a book about it, the, the drug problem, specifically the heroin epidemic. But infections and dermatologic problems by far outweighed anything else other than the trauma of, of combat. So your job was a battalion surgeon. What was the job description of that? Well, I'm not quite sure. What I was told was, hey, here you are. You're responsible for the care and feeding of the eight or 900 people in your battalion. Far flung though they were, we had fire bases all over the place that I traveled to. So what I saw my job was to keep them up to dates on immunizations, make sure they took the malaria prophylaxis that... I became an expert on sexually transmitted diseases. I won't describe why. And and I trained my medics to recognize and take care of those too, because that was something that for folks in garrison, always a a risk. And and so I was responsible for the men in my battalion. And they were all men. There were no women in my battalion. There certainly were women nurses and such in theater, but not where I was. So I, I got to Vietnam having been in the army five weeks. And I showed up at my battalion and they were using terms like clicks and projos. And I said, stop, you have to send me somewhere. I'm used to getting schooled in in things that I'm involved in. So you have to send me somewhere so I can learn the lingo. And they said, not a problem, doc. They sent me to forward observer school. I said, wait, am I supposed to do this? Don't worry about it. So in Anke, I went to uh, forward observer school. And got pretty good at it, actually, and then went back to my battalion. It it was over a a week or so. And uh, so now I understood at least some of the things that they were talking about. And and I guess the point there is when you're with a group, it's, it's kind of an occupational medicine thing. You need to figure out what the people are doing that you're taking care of what they're talking about, what their lifestyles are, what their culture is. And you fit in and you're better able to provide that care. So you had just completed one year of internship training. And so you're a newly minted doc. You've been in the army for five weeks. You probably don't even know all of the ranks yet. What were the things that you felt that you were prepared for? And what were you least prepared for? The things I was most prepared for, and fortunately, I had a rotating internship. So I was exposed to a spectrum and and I was able to take care of all the primary care problems that young, healthy soldiers had. That was not a problem. I was least prepared for some of the unusual and unique infections that we had in Vietnam. I was not well prepared for dealing with trauma, but fortunately, I didn't have to because we had air evacuation. And so even if there was a firefight that I was involved in, I would do basic first aid and and they would be whisked off to the surgical hospitals and better, more competent care. So I did have some hairy episodes that I had to do things I wasn't really well trained for, chest tubes and such, but you learn those on the fly. And of course, when I grew up, we didn't have the simulation training that we now have that we put not only our physicians, PAs, but, but also our combat medics through. 
So I think that's a great segue to our next question. What would you say are some of the medical lessons learned by the U.S. Army in the Vietnam War that helped care for patients in subsequent wars? Well, the first and most significant, it seems to me, is controlled bleeding. If you're in something where you're going to be faced with good grief, as you well know, with, with trauma, you have to control bleeding. We did not understand that. We, we forgot some of the lessons we learned from World War II. We did not use tourniquets as we should have. We did have blood replacement. We had evacuation, as I mentioned. But that, it seems to me, was first and foremost a main lesson from there. Obviously, we needed to know the situation on the ground as far as infections and all of that kind of thing. We do that pretty well. We think of military medicine all too often as only trauma care. It's, as you know, much, much more than that and begins with preventive medicine, keeping people healthy, understanding the situation into which we're putting them and making sure that we have strategies in place to deal with whatever the infections or other threats are. But but as far as Vietnam, I, I think the, uh, the control of the bleed is number one. What would you say is your most interesting clinical case? If someone asked you, tell me about a clinical patient that you took care of in Vietnam, what story would you tell? I'll tell you some of the most, well, one of the most, I'll just, you asked me about one interesting cases I had was going to a village because I went out on medical civil affairs missions quite often, took a Jeep filled with people that carried weapons, and then we'd go out to the villages, and I'd have sick call. Great time. Saw interesting things, including bubonic plague. So somebody comes up and has these bubos in his inguinal area, and I figured out what it was. At least I thought what it was. And of course, once you know that, it's easily treatable. And I was able to verify that with subsequent cultures. And then went back to the village and we did a, an eradication program for uh, the rat on which the, uh, the fleas live that, that carry the, uh, the organism. So uh, it was a great example of a clinical case that led to some concrete steps that uh, hopefully made a difference. Although, you know, once we left, then what? What kind of longevity was there to those programs we put in place? I tried to and all of us did train local people to continue the preventive medicine and, and eradication of rodents and that kind of thing. But I just thought that was fascinating and led to me doing three months in tropical diseases later at the end of my residency at Walter Reed. I have one follow-up question to the advancements in the war. You, I'm hoping you can put it in context for me, just that the understanding of controlling bleeding wasn't quite understood or, or totally utilized there. So say a patient's shot in the leg and it is bleeding. How are they managed with that? Are they packing it? Direct pressure. Yeah, maybe some packing, but I cannot remember. I'm sure tourniquets were used, but I don't think very much. And of course, we had no hemostatic agents. We underutilized tourniquets. And the worst was if somebody was wounded and maybe they were putting direct pressure on, maybe a buddy was, maybe a medic was there, maybe a medic wasn't, but they waited for the chopper and more definitive care and they bled out. They bled out. And we've looked at that. You know the data far better than me, but we lost a lot of people that uh, might have been salvageable. So at the end of the Vietnam War, you were stationed at Walter Reed and helped lead the general medicine service. What lessons were you teaching the trainees and other physicians about your time serving in Vietnam? It wasn't so much medicine. Walter Reed was a wonderful training ground for seeing all sorts of great cases. And we had no dearth of that. Those were the days of the air vac where the 
plane would go around all the, the bases and, and stops and pick up patients and bring them to the Bamsies and the Walter Reeds of the world. But we didn't emphasize military education. I actually, when I was a, was I a senior resident? I think I was. The commanding general said, okay, Ron, I want you to do basic training. You're in charge of basic for this. Remember, the draft was over and in 73. So we're dealing with a post-draft, still Barry planners coming in, but a, a post-draft medical corps in, in the Army Medical Department. And I said, what do you mean I'm supposed to run basic? He said, yeah. He said, every Saturday morning, all these folks are going to show up and I want you to teach them about uniforms and military discipline and all that kind of stuff. I said, you got to be kidding me. And so indeed, they showed up and I showed them how to put their brass on, what a uniform was. No, you don't wear penny loafers with uh, with your uniform. That's kind of a no-no. And uh, no, I'm serious. It was horrible. And so that went on for a couple of Saturdays. And about the third Saturday, they figured out that nobody was serious about this. So they stopped showing up. I was absolutely bound and determined that that could not go on, must not go on, and that we have to pay attention to basic advanced, all the rest of the of the military levels of education, and somehow try to incorporate that into the otherwise excellent medical education that we were giving. It has to be a combination of medical and officer. And that's something that when I went to the Uniform Services University, I think that university does very, very well. So one of the things that really interested me in your CV was that after graduating, you went to Germany and were the commander of a army hospital in Berlin right before the wall fell. And, and actually, you were still in Germany at Frankfurt when the wall fell. Can you tell us about that time in army medicine? Oh, my gosh. What, what a terrific time. And that was after I graduated from the Army War College at, at Carlisle, when you said after graduation. So it was kind of mid-career, and I was privileged to be selected for command of the Berlin Hospital. Why were we there? Berlin was still an occupied city. So on my ribbons, I have an Army occupation ribbon. because We were still in a World War II occupation status with the uh, British, French, and Soviets. And we would come together every month at Spandau Prison, where the four powers in rotation guarded the single prisoner at Spandau, Rudolf Hess, who managed to hang himself on our watch at age 93. And so we were guarding him. The, the Americans went to the British hospital. Spandau was in the British zone and watched my chief of medicine do CPR on Hess, just breaking ribs. And the British hospital commander and I looked at each other and said, no, this can't go on. So we said, stop, which annoyed the French and the Soviets greatly because we weren't supposed to do anything until all four powers were, were present. Said, fine, start it up again, but he's gone. And so they mumbled and grumbled and it didn't, uh, didn't do very much. So Berlin being an occupied city meant that we had American forces, British forces, and French forces we trained together, did a lot together, and of course, we're quite separate in West Berlin from East Berlin, occupied and administered by the Soviet forces. And we would go to the East, have a great dinner, you know, cross at Checkpoint Charlie, and, and the experience was, was wonderful. We were, uh, if you know where Berlin is, it's quite far East, and it's closer actually to Poland than it is to where West Berlin was. So it was in the middle of East Germany. And we kind of considered ourselves the canary in the mine, because if, if anything happened, we were going down first, and, and we were prepared to put up 
whatever kind of defense we could have. We had some tanks and some artillery pieces. It wouldn't have been very much over an overwhelming uh, Soviet force. But it was a fascinating experience to socialize with the Germans, the British, the French, and occasionally the Soviets. We would deal with them at Spandau. And after the hospital commanders and prison directors had seen Hess every month, we would have a lunch. And whoever was guarding him would host the luncheon with, if the Soviets were hosting it, lots of vodka. And so it was an absolutely fascinating time. And then, as you point out, I went to Frankfurt and later that year, the, uh, the wall fell. I saw the end of the Third Reich with Rudolf Hess's demise, Hitler's deputy. And then I saw the beginning of the end, at least, of the Soviet Union with the fall of the wall. How fascinating is that? What were the DOD European concerns at the time, and how did it impact the medical plan for care of potential combat casualties? Well, you see what the Russians are doing now. And I studied the Soviet forces at the War College and and in other forums. And what they do is they just do mass, mass attack with artillery, with armor, with everything they have, and just overwhelm you. So we were faced with unbelievable onslaught should the balloon ever gone up. And there would have been unimaginable casualties. How are we going to deal with that? We had not only the medical forces in country, but we also had a lot of warm base hospitals that were set up to have a uh, an influx of personnel from the states come in and take care of uh, patients. So we had them in usually to the far to the west where we thought the battle would would be and get you know would start and and we had hospitals in the Netherlands we had hospitals in Belgium hospitals we used to have hospitals in France but they threw us out hospitals in England and and we had thousands of beds equipped ready to go without personnel that were maintained and then we also had stockpiles that would have allowed us to set up army navy air force hospitals as circumstances demanded Everyone had their eyes on Europe and what were the Soviets going to do? And then Saddam Hussein decides to invade Kuwait. So what were you doing at that time? And and what were the priorities of army medicine when we started looking at Southwest Asia? When Hussein invaded Kuwait, I had just been promoted to brigadier and was the head of policy at the office of the Army Surgeon General. So I, with a lot of help of a lot of people, assessed what the threats were, not only from the impending combat, but the infections, the threat of weapons of mass destruction. We realized that anthrax could have been used by Saddam Hussein. And so we stockpiled not penicillin because we knew the strain he had was resistant to penicillin. Then what do you go to? Tetracycline? I think not. Why? Tetracycline makes people sun sensitive and they're in the desert. So that's why we went to ciprofloxacin and made whoever makes Cipro very, very happy because we stockpiled a heck of a lot of it. And so we looked at those kinds of things. We put, as you know, just enormous numbers of medical personnel, hospitals, beds in theater. We called up retirees. Uh, I had the privilege of doing that and heard some very interesting stories of why that wouldn't be a good idea in in their case. But but most people were very gracious, came on board, did what they could to to help. And, And I did get a call from, I think it was the mayor of Boston, who said, please, you're taking all my trauma surgeons who were largely in the reserves. And so we backed off on some of that, tried to be as realistic as possible, and and had no expectation that the war was going to be as short and casually free and 
Certainly, we had casualties, as you well know, particularly the uh, National Guard unit from Pennsylvania that had suffered from a rocket attack, Scud missile attack, but it was over. But then we were left with the Gulf War illness, and that consumed a lot of time. You talked about having a lot of beds available in country, which was a similar model to Vietnam, having a big medical footprint. And subsequently, as we went into Operation Iraqi Freedom and into Afghanistan, we completely changed that model and didn't have people in country. Where were you in that evolution of how we plan to take care of and evacuate people out of the area of battle? Well, first, we we realized that we vastly overestimated the need for beds. And that was somewhat circumstantial because the battle went as well as it did. We didn't need all the beds that we had. And then we realized that we don't need, uh, and I was part of that, the holding capacity that we had with general hospitals. We got rid of them, took them out of the inventory. The Air Force came up with their care in the air and and their uh, team evacuation teams that, hey, we don't need to hold people here. Even pretty severely wounded people can get in a vac and, and go to where there is really excellent definitive care, Longstool obviously being the place. Although I'll tell you, when I commanded Walter Reed, I had people sent from Somalia, badly wounded, directly from there to Walter Reed, still had their dirt on their battle dress. And so the evacuation system is the key as far as, and, and, and all the other stuff, the resuscitation and, and the trained teams in taking care of casualties and not holding them in theater. Now, you have to be careful because you do want to keep some people in theater because they can go back to the fight. They can go back to duty. So you have to have policies in place that, you know, it depends on the time of expected recovery as to who you evacuate and who you don't. So you served as the assistant dean of student affairs for the Uniformed Services University School of Medicine. Tell us about that position and what specifically were you teaching the residents and medical students that was unique to their future careers in military medicine? That was a great position. The school actually was founded in 1972. That's when the public law was passed and took in its first class in 76. Uh, And I was the first assistant dean for student affairs and went there with Robert J.T. Joy. Bob Joy was a commander of of Walter Reed Institute of Research and an eminent military historian, dear friend. Anyway, he he and I were bound and determined, and, and others too. Jay Sanford was the dean at the time, known for his antibiotic handbook, that this would be a place that combined the best in medical education and looking specifically at all those areas that military medicine encompasses with officership, with being part of the military, not coming in as I did and learning about it, but knowing it from the ground up. And so what we did was essentially incorporate into the first year officer basic. Now, about half the class already had been through it. We had a couple of SEALs, special forces, and all that sort of thing that didn't need it, but that's fine. They were then class leaders. And and through the four years, we incorporated that military education and training into the medical education and training. And and I'm making it sound as they're they're distinct. We tried to make them as integrated as we possibly could. Because if if you're going to be a military physician, and now we have the Graduate School of Nursing and we run the programs at Fort Sam Houston for enlisted, you really want to, everything you do in medicine needs to be thought about in the context of the military. 
And, and that was just so important. I take no credit for it, but the school has largely succeeded in doing that. And it's a jam-packed curriculum for sure, but it does teach officership. It does emphasize the military aspects of everything that they do in their educational career and then in their subsequent practice. In the early 80s, you had the opportunity to go back to the place you fell in love with during basic training, and that's Fort Sam Houston. <laughs> and you were the Department of Medicine chief at Brook Army Medical Center. What was going on at Brook Army Medical Center at that time? What a, what a great place. Now, you have to remember this is 1979 that I got there. Draft ended in 73. So a lot of doctors that were in the army got out and we were having a tough time in getting them in. Recruiting was a huge priority. One of the big recruiting tools that we had and still have is graduate medical education. So the former assistant chief of medicine at Walter Reed went to Brooke to be the chief of medicine, was promoted to brigadier and became the commander of Brooke Army Medical Center, Andre Ognabini who at age 89 or 90 is still with us and was seeing patients until about a year ago. Also, when he had chest pain, drove himself to the ER. I said, doctor, doctor, tell's wrong with you. And he said, yeah, I know. So Andy knew me from Walter Reed and uh, asked me to come down. And much as I hated to leave USU, I, I thought this was a wonderful opportunity to continue building just a, a terrific internal medicine and subspecialty in medicine program, working with the other specialties, taking care of patients on the burn unit. But it was it was something else. There was the main hospital. That's where the emergency room was. And then there was, and that came under me and we started the emergency medicine residency there. And then the intensive care units were all at Beach Pavilion where my office was. So I, I had, I think it was 29 ambulances and ambulance drivers that were stationed at Maine Hospital, and their job was to ferry patients back and forth. It was ridiculous, but it's the way, it's the way it was. And we tried to do everything we could to, to minimize the, the perils of travel. Obviously, the new hospital has obviated a lot of that. But it was, it was a wonderful challenge, great time, able to recruit some terrific uh, staff, were able to do things like we hired a lot of uh, nurses as educators. So I ran a big primary care clinic, internal medicine. I'd staff there. I rotated residents through there. Well, doctors, as wonderful as we are, don't tend to spend a whole lot of time with patients. And sometimes we don't, I know this is going to come as a shock, communicate as well as we would like to. Nurses are good at it. And so for all my chronic patients, diabetes, arthritis, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, I assigned them to nurses who would work with them, educate them, spend time with them. And we reduced the uh, the rate of them coming back for care considerably because of, of that. It was a nice model. Rotated residents up through uh, Fort Hood before they had their programs there. So it was, a, uh, was an exciting time. And just some unbelievable staff, unbelievable residents. Jim Gilman, who may be known to you, retired uh, major general, was one of my chief residents, my best chief resident. He, he is, was terrific and a good friend to this day, is now the uh, director of the clinical center at NIH. But he's one of those folks that went through Brooke. So speaking of excellent communication, at that time, you know, Air Force had Wolford Hall, another major medical center, not too far across the city of San Antonio. How did Brooke and Wolford Hall and the city of San Antonio cooperate at that time? Reasonably well. There were enough patients for 
both of us. And I, I got to know the chief of medicine at Wilford Hall. We communicated. We actually began exchanging residents from subspecialty uh, kinds of experiences. I actually went there and and worked. I, I forget what I did. I worked in their emergency room or in their their clinic. I did that at Wiesbaden as well with the Air Force Hospital when I commanded Frankfurt. And their commander came and, and worked at Brook. And, and we tried to do things that would bring us together and yet maintain the distinct identities and, and integrity of both programs. With San Antonio, we were both uh, linked with their medical system. And, and it, was a, it was a collegial time. And if they were short in some staff area, I would help them out. If we were short, they would help me out. You served as the commander of the Walter Reed Medical Center from 1992 to 1996. What were the major challenges during your time as a commander, and did you have any unique experiences? Oh, you bet. There were great challenges. Walter Reed was in a time of some turmoil, uh, having gone through a lot of change, still dealing with the aftermath of the first Gulf War, Somalia, some issues there. And so when I got there, it had been perfectly well run, but I'll tell you the problem with Walter Reed. Walter Reed is an institution that was, and, and to this day is, uh, even though it's at a different location, in the middle of a of an urban area where when you walk down the street, you kind of keep your eyes averted and you, you be careful uh, how you look at people and all of that kind of thing. That's who we recruited from the least well-paid jobs that are the most important jobs, and that's those that first deal with the patients, the receptionist, the person at the front desk, the person that makes the appointment. And so we were having a serious problem with not medical care, although I consider all of this medical care, but with people care. So I brought Ritz-Carlton in. I figured, hey, we're a hospital. We ought to at least be as friendly as, as a hotel. So Ritz-Carlton came in and I, somebody helped me pick 100 people. And we trained the trainers. And then everybody, including reluctant physicians, went through an eight-hour training course in how to be hotel-friendly made a huge difference. People were proud of what they did. People looked you in the eye. People tried to work with patients who often don't feel good and aren't at their best. And it's one of those little touches that makes such a difference. And sometimes in medicine generally, military medicine, we don't think about or pay enough attention to, but that people aspects of thing is is so important. It's why when I was Surgeon General, I forbade the use of the term customer drives me crazy. Yeah, I understand what it means and I understand the business aspect. No, they're patients. They're not customers. And that's just a different way of looking at things. And I think Walter Reed took that very seriously. Then we had also the challenges of budgets, cuts. We were able to close a lot of warehouse space. We went to just-in-time delivery. We had, of course, still the aftermath of, of dealing with the Gulf War illness. Took a lot of heat of that, and somehow I got stuck with being the point person on it. And so I did a lot of testimony, a lot of interviews with, uh, with press and such. And as open as I could be, I said, we take it seriously. Something's there. We don't know what it is. We're doing everything we can to find out. I don't know what more to tell you. I tried to phrase it better than that. But what I did, again, talking to staff and, and getting ideas, is I set up the Gulf War Health Center at Walter Reed. And that was a ward we took, I'm going to make this up, something like 20 families at a time with the service member and family, spouse or significant other, not kids, who would come there for, I think it was three weeks. And, and we would give them coping skills. We would say, look, we know you're sick. 
We don't know what it is. We're trying to figure it out. Let us help you deal with your symptoms. It was almost an AA kind of experience where people were able to do gradual exercise to take classes into how to do things differently so that didn't stress themselves, how to deal with, with their symptoms, how to control uh, bodily functions and so forth. And we had a lot of people go through that who were able to stay in the Army, pass the physical fitness test because of that program. It, it evolved then into the Deployment Health Center, which I think still is in existence. And I think it's partially run out of the Uniformed Services University. It gets at what a lot of our warfighters go through. And is it exposure to things? Maybe, partially. I mean, we've heard recently from Dallas that it was exposure to sarin in a lot of cases, and, and that may well be so. Is it post-traumatic stress? That may be some of it, too. But point is, we can help these people if we acknowledge their illness and be upfront with them and say, no, it's not depleted uranium. Pretty sure about that. It's not oil, fire, smoke. It's not all these kinds of things. Let us help you and work with you. So ultimately, in your military career, you became the 39th Army Surgeon General. What would you say was the greatest challenge you faced during that time? And what was your greatest success during your tenure? It's hard to say what the greatest challenge was because there were many as people continued to chip away at budgets and doing those kinds of things. And we were still dealing with the aftermath of enormous change that we had gone through before. My predecessor, Sid Lanou, was, was a wonderful change agent. And, and he did much to move the Army Medical Department in some different directions that created a lot of disruption in the ranks, a lot of confusion. It's, as any change of that magnitude does, we were bringing in TRICARE. He wanted gateway to care. And, and so Part of what I saw as my job was to create, one, stability to a degree, and two, communicate what we were doing. Communication always being the biggest challenge because everybody at a certain level thinks those above them have no clue what they're doing. So those in the higher ranks need to communicate that they actually do, and here's why, and explain things. And so, so the biggest challenge really was creating that stability while still, you know, doing a degree of change and then then creating the the communication channels that that hopefully just fostered that sense of, of camaraderie and belonging. And now we understand or at least they have some clue as to what what they're doing up there. And then at the same time, being able to, to deal with some of the, the immediate challenges and the long range challenge of how were we preparing from the medic on up for the next war? Remembering that we are a huge healthcare system consumed with providing patient care to all of our beneficiaries, obviously the men and women in active duty, their families, retirees, and their families, but really getting ready to deploy because that's what we're there for. If deployment is not a mission, we might as well all be civilians. Uh, horrible thought. So how did you do that? And I was just so fortunate to have Jim Peake at the uh, then AMED Center in school. And we did after actions. He and I did them after the first Gulf War with the surgeon, with people who were over there with the challenges that they faced. He went to the schoolhouse and applied some of those. And one of the things that I really tried to do that he was able to accomplish was move the combat medic to a, well, from the 92 to the 68 Whiskey series so that they were a better trained medic that was able to do things on the battlefield that 
Uh, I'm not sure I would have been able to do as well when I was a battalion surgeon in Vietnam. Oh, and going back to Vietnam, one of the things that was very clear to me is we did not need a physician as battalion surgeon. We were highly paid <laughs> medics in many, many ways. And so we then went to PAs, perfect. And of course, training the combat medics uh, in all of the, uh, the skills that you know about, I think has made a huge difference in our ability to provide uh, battlefield care. And it's going to be all the more important as we get to a time that we will not necessarily have air superiority, where we say the golden hour. How about the golden 48 hours? We're going to have to take care of those people without being able to evacuate them. You both probably know Rocky Farr, who both one of my students and interns and, and is a, a very good friend. And he wrote the book, The Death of the Golden Hour. And his point is, we're almost going to have to go back to the guerrilla warfare medical system of World War II, where people who were wounded were taken care of on site by their unit who may have moved and so forth, without them being evacuated as we've been able to do to the launch tools of the world. What important leadership lesson did you learn that you would want others to know? Biggest leadership lesson that I would share is visibility is credibility. Be visible. Now, that's difficult when you're Surgeon General and you have people in Korea and Germany and so forth, but even then you can be visible through various ways that we have today. But in a, in a unit, in a hospital, in, in a medical center, being out there walking around is just, I can't tell you how important. People still stop me in the halls of Walter Reed and say, I remember you walking around. Obviously, these are old people, but I, it's just, you know, warms my heart and all that. It is so important to be seen. And you have to be a little careful because you're also setting the example. So you want to be doing what you're telling people to do and not something else. And so if, if you do that walk, uh, you are visible, you do communicate, it means so much. And that's, I think, a huge part of leadership, that visibility and credibility. So one of the things that some of our listeners may not realize is that the Surgeon General actually has an office in the Pentagon and spends a lot of time advising senior officials. What is the craziest Pentagon story? that you have as Surgeon General? Well, it wasn't as Surgeon General. My best Pentagon story is was when I made Brigadier, and our offices were in Skyline in Falls Church. And uh, so I was pretty proud, you know, had my stars. <laughs> what could be better than that? It's the old story. My, my father would have been proud. My mother would have actually believed that I deserved it. And so I went to the general officer's mess in the Pentagon, and Sergeant looked me up and down, and he said, you're not eligible. I said, what do you mean? I'm a general. He said, it's two stars and up here. He said, brigadiers are dime a dozen. <laughs> so I slunk off and, and never forget that. Two others. One is with, with Secretary Cohen, and it's when we were rolling out the anthrax immunization program over a lot of protests. There was a group, Anthrax No, that were very active, and that led to a 60 Minutes interview I'll tell you about if you want. But Secretary Cohen said, how do how do I, you know, emphasize the importance of this? I said, get a bag of flour or sugar or something, five pound bag, hold it up, and say if this were anthrax and released from a tower in Chicago, and if the wind directions were right, it would sicken and kill thousands the whole way down to New Orleans, and he did, and and so the press appeared 
you know, as as impressed as as they are. And then he left the stage, and uh, I was there to answer questions about the anthrax program. It's one of the most important things I think we did, and and I can only imagine some of the difficulties people are having with the current vaccine mandate and and some of the the difficulties with it and so forth. But the other one was in the Pentagon, where I was interviewed by I think Steve Carroll, who said, "Well." General, t- tell me about these these airmen. And I went through risk and benefit of, of vaccines and uh, nothing without risk, but the benefit far outweighs it. And he said, well, but but what about these airmen that are t- being taken off flight status? I said, I have no idea. He said, what do you mean you have no idea? You're the Air Force Surgeon General. I said, no, I'm the Army Surgeon General. Perhaps the color of the uniform would have given you a clue. And I'm thinking as I'm saying this, this is not good. This is not a good thing to say. And I hear gasps behind me. Well, he was such a gentleman. He said, oh, I'm so sorry. He said, actually, I'm colorblind. Well, then I felt kind of bad. And I said, I'm sorry, but your staff should have briefed you better. So anyway, they let me live and showed a fair amount of the interview that that was on 60 Minutes. So there are those kinds of stories. There are the stories of the briefings in the tank going to, you know, the Secretary of Defense, the Deputy Secretary for budget hearings, having the, oh, we, we had all the vices get together once a month for an anthrax update. So I would give them that. And the Navy vice wasn't there. And so one of my guys was briefing and said, yeah, he said, some flag reported that the shot was so painful, it drove him to his knees. And one of the Marines looked at the other and said that it was the Navy. It was broke, broke the room up. One of the things that I recall during that time, there was a scandal about medical licenses and malpractice and how military physicians were able to get licenses out of state and not practice in the state in which they were licensed. And there may have been some lax licensing rules. How did you deal with that? That couldn't have been an easy scenario to deal with. No, we had that. We had the Dayton Daily News reports, and it it all came together and portrayed military medicine in a bad light. It's the way you deal with any bad news or or problem like that is first, acknowledge it. Don't try to put it off or cover it up. Get in front of it as soon as possible. There's nothing worse than old, bad news. Don't let it age. And so acknowledging it, getting with the the people who matter, your stakeholders, going on the offensive with the press, who you have to realize are, are not your friend, and making sure that you're getting your side of the story out, uh, being sure that you're not trying to say, well, it wasn't our fault, it wasn't this, it wasn't that, even though it might not have been. This was the state of Oklahoma trying to do us a favor and did none. It's taking ownership of it. And saying, look, this is how we're dealing with it. Yes, that went on, but but here's the steps we've taken. This will never happen again. We don't believe it impacted care in any way. And I had to take out of clinical care a few of my friends. I mean, people that I had worked with at Brooke, actually, who had their medical license through Oklahoma. And I forget the circumstances, but they could get a kind of a, an abbreviated license that met our standards, because we only said you have to have a license. We didn't say it has to be a full unrestricted license. And and we just took them out of clinical care and said, this, sorry, but, but that's what we have to do. And you, you take those hard decisions, you step up. And um, I am convinced that our patient population are the most forgiving in the world. They understand people make mistakes and screw up, 
But if you are upfront with them, acknowledge a mistake, tell them what you're doing to make it better, they'll forgive you. And, and I've done that with patients that have had some issue that that was malpractice, that simply wanted some acknowledgement of a, a mistake that was made, and, and and then they'll move on. After your military retirement, you joined the North Texas Science Center at Fort Worth, becoming the president there. What were the major differences between military medicine education and civilian medicine education? It's interesting I didn't want to go into the business side of things, the Booz Allens or or all of that. And I thought an academic uh, institution would be as close to the values of the army in mission focus, not you know money driven and all of that. In, in fact, I found it to be to be incredibly political. Many many good people, but but there were so many. And I've been told this is true across academia, probably not everywhere. Personal agendas, petty issues uh, that you know you deal with, and that's okay. But I, I found it a bit disappointing. Now I love the place, I love the people there, but I did find it a bit disappointing because it was so different than the the army, the military. For God knows all of its flaws, bureaucracy, and so forth, is still a place where you can do the purest practice of medicine or whatever your discipline is any regard of the patient's ability to pay, where you don't have to worry about finding the right code so that you get reimbursed and so forth. You can do the best that you can for the patient. That and the opportunities the military offers is what it's about. So let's say 50 to 100 years from now, your two daughters, your grandchildren, great-grandchildren were to unearth this podcast. What would you want them to hear about your military medicine career? that he was proud of being an army doc, someone who took care of patients in the military because the military has the most deserving patients in the world who cared for them and about them and did his best for them in all his positions. I miss seeing patients, but I kind of made up for it, particularly at Walter Reed. I go make rounds and, and you know get my, my thrill that way, <laughs> terrorize poor residents. But that patient care aspect and everything I've ever done, every command I've ever had has been focused on taking care of these deserving patients. That's what I'd want them to know. We've been speaking with retired Lieutenant General Dr. Ronald Blank on War Docs podcast. Ron, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Well, you are very kind. Thank you very much. And what a great opportunity to share. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.